to everyone at our Green, Cincy, and online campuses and everybody who's given faithfully to Fuel over these last two years. We wouldn't be here today without you. So we have something that we'd like to say. Thank you. Today is a moment that we celebrate and that we'll look back on as a day that God did something great. But today, today's not the end, right? The video you just saw that was recorded last week during the private rehearsal Sunday. Today, the door is open publicly out in Bainbridge. 10 o'clock, they're going to gather, they're going to worship. I talked to Christy, who's on the music team. She told me that she has invited at least half of Afton to come this morning. Um, and we are just, we're in awe of what God's done, but more than that, we're in awe of what he's going to do. So let me ask you a little bit of a question. What I'd like to do today is I'd like us to jump into uh, uh, my time machine and fast forward 50 years. And let's go to the year 2071. All right? <laughs> Someone just had a panic attack. 2071, 2071. Now, now, it's a little bit odd for me to say let's fast forward uh, and, and look at the future, look at maybe the legacy of this church. It'd be a little bit like, uh, you know, you're in the maternity ward and your, your brand new baby's placed on your wife's chest for the first time after a long labor, and as the dad, you look at that baby and you say, honey, what's going to be written on her tombstone someday? That's weird. Right, that's a little awkward. So I get it. It's a little bit weird to look forward towards an unknown future, but there's a little bit of wisdom in this because we gotta, we got to ask the questions. What are we doing all this for? What does the future potentially look like? Because see, 50 years from now, that building a half hour from here to our east, it, it's going to be not new anymore. It's going to be a little bit old. Those 80-plus gallons of paint that Lowell and Dick have rolled on the walls are going to be covered under multiple new layers. In fact, they'll probably have some atmospheric coating that was developed by Elon Musk. <laughs> the TV screens won't be there anymore. They'll be replaced with something different. In fact, most of the people that are there today won't be there. In fact, I probably am not going to be here, and you may not either. But there will be, by God's grace, people there. Men, women, and children. And they, my friends, will be our legacy. And wouldn't it be cool if someday, 50 years forward, we could fast forward and we could hear them saying, man, I am so glad God brought Berean to Bainbridge. Because of that decision 50 years ago, my life is different. Because of that decision 50 years ago, my family is different. And my community is different. Wouldn't you love to hear that? So today we're going to look at another church, not in the future, but in the past, whose legacy was exactly that. They did some things that were a little bit different, and their legacy caused ripples throughout the last 2,000 years, literally up till today. We are part of this church's legacy that I'm going to talk about today. If you would turn in your Bible or Bible app, if, if you have one, to Acts chapter 11. And we're going to look at a church 
that we know something about through historical records and the record of Scripture. But I just have to confess off the bat, there's a lot about this church that we look at today that we don't know. We, we don't know what they're, uh, we don't know how long they were on the scene, first of all. We don't know how many people came on a weekly basis. We don't know how many campuses they had. We don't know what their operating budget might have been. Uh, in fact, we really don't know the names of most of the people that were involved in this church. But it was a church that did things a little bit differently to reach people, and it was filled with people whose names they might be lost to history, but they were faithful people who just did what God asked. And God used them to start a group, a movement in the ancient world. And they they were kind of a group of nobodies in the middle of nowhere that began to reach people that no one else was reaching. And verse 19 is where we get their story. Chapter 11 of Acts. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, first off, you need to ask the question, how did this church in Antioch begin? It didn't begin with a campaign from a mother church who hoped to launch a baby church in a new community. That's not how it began. This church began because things were bad. Things were difficult. In fact, I'm understating it. Things were dangerous. In Jerusalem, Christians began to have targets on their back, and they faced regular interrogation, imprisonment, and then Stephen was kind of the first church leader who was martyred, killed. And and he was killed or martyred by a kind of a religious mob. And it was spearheaded by this up-and-coming religious zealot, this leader, named Saul. And Saul had made it his mission, especially after the death of Stephen, I am going to wipe out this thing. Whatever this new cult is, I'm going to wipe it out. I'm going to protect God's legacy from these wackos. And so Paul makes it his personal mission to wipe them out. And in the midst of that... These Christians have to become refugees. They can't stay in their hometown, so they flee to this new region. Now, typically you think, okay, this would have closed churches, this would have stopped churches, this would have scared people away from this new movement. But do you notice that the opposite is actually happening? And that's for a simple reason. The church doesn't need public support. The church doesn't need prosperity. The church doesn't even need comfort to thrive. All the church ever needs is people with faith. And so throughout history, when you look at difficult times in in a nation or in a community, you're often going to find a church, a movement of Christians, that don't just survive it, but they thrive. That is the power of the movement of Jesus Christ. And my friends, as we as a country and really globally have gone through a very difficult time, do you know we as a church have been able to be part of something that's not just survival, 
but it's the movement of Jesus spreading and on the move. Does that get anyone else a little bit excited? We get to be part of that. And that's what the church through history has always done in difficult times. The true church always thrives. Now, I want you to see that this church is thriving because they're doing something that no one else is doing. Up to this point, followers of Jesus were what ethnicity? They were Jewish. And these Jewish followers of Jesus were reaching other Jews until now. And now you have a group of people from Cyprus and Cyrene who make it their mission to begin to share Jesus with non-Jews. They were called Gentiles. Anyone else in here a Gentile? I am. And they made it their mission to share with non-Jews the message of Jesus. This had not been done on this scale before. This was a new thing. And so as they are refugees from Jerusalem, from a very ethnically... uh, Mono, a mono-ethnically, a single-ethnically culture in Jerusalem, all Jewish, they make it their mission in their new community in Antioch to start spreading Jesus with these neighbors and these co-workers and these friends. And you know what these neighbors begin doing? These neighbors begin to receive Jesus. And it's this really cool thing as the gospel goes out and the the movement of Christianity goes from being a Jewish thing to a Gentile thing. It goes from being a regional thing to a global thing. And here's what we're told in verse 21. It says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, you look at this statement, you look at this verse, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Wouldn't you love to have this be the description of every church in America? The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Isn't this our prayer for our church? God, may your hand be with us and may it lead to a great number of people who believe and turn to you. So so that's what's going on here because Jesus loves to draw people to himself and Jesus loves to change lives. And when Jesus sees people that share that passion, you know what he does? He empowers them, he blesses them, he gets behind them and he energizes them to do it well. And here were some people from Cyprus and Cyrene who were doing something differently. They began to reach people that no one else was reaching in a way that no one else was doing. To make this a little personal, this is something that I've admired about this church. You know, I've only been part of this church for 12 years, but this church existed long before I was born, even. Some of you were part of that original group, that original movement, and and you made a decision. 52, three years ago, you made a decision that you were gonna do things differently, and that decision was that you were gonna be a non-denominational church because you wanted to reach people of all different stripes, all different backgrounds. You weren't going to identify with the denomination. You were going to be an independent, non-denominational Bible church, a church that was just going to be centered not on a label, but on the word of God. That was a pretty cool revolutionary decision. And it's from that decision that we 
have this church that we have today. More recently, this church made a decision to, again, do things a little differently. We decided, rather than wait for people to come to us, we're going to go to them. And so we made a decision, we're going to be a multi-site church where we're going to launch worship gatherings in new communities and new neighborhoods so that rather than trying to invite people a half hour away, people that are coming from 30 minutes away can invite their friends and neighbors to a local worship gathering. That was a major decision. And that is a decision that God has been blessing as we've been able to reach and share the good news with people in other communities. Now, you might wonder, those of you who maybe don't have a full story of why Bainbridge? Why you choose Bainbridge? Is it just because Elmer's glue was invented there? I mean, is there more to that story? There is. Because see, back in 2017, January to be exact, we put out a survey to you. Many of you filled that out. And we asked you, where should we focus on next? We had just recently finished construction of this facility. We had recently launched a new campus up in Cincinnati with a bunch of families that we sent out to be our core group up there and reach a new community. We said, where should we focus next? Where are the greatest spiritual needs? And we asked you. Now, when we asked you that question, can I tell you a location that wasn't on our minds as leaders? Bainbridge. And yet, you know where you directed our attention? Bainbridge, and it surprised us, and I remember specifically some of the responses because some people said, listen, I I grew up in Bainbridge, I used to go to Bainbridge, I'm familiar with the schools in Bainbridge, I teach in Bainbridge, and I can just tell you, there are tremendous spiritual needs in Bainbridge, and our hearts were pulled and tugged, and we thought, okay, this is going to be unusual because we don't have almost anyone from our church who lives in Bainbridge. This is going to be really different than anything we've done. But we don't want to miss this opportunity where God is working. And if God has laid it on the hearts of our people, then let's begin to pursue this new community. (laughs) And so a little over four years ago, we began this winding journey that's led us to this moment. And I just want to say, I hope that we will always be a church that's willing to try new things to reach people for Jesus Christ. Amen? May we always be willing to try new things. We always pray, God, help us to be married to our mission and help us to date our methods. We're willing to change our methods, but we never want to shift from the mission. Check out verse 22. Watch what happens next to this this church. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. All the way back. The, the people who are living in that persecution, they're, they're the main church, they're the mother church, they're the original church. They hear about what God's doing in Antioch and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay, so there's, there's some questioning. Why did they do that? Why did they send one of their leaders to Antioch? Well, for one, they're probably trying to figure out what's going on. They're trying to figure out what's going on in that community. We're hearing reports. Are things going well like we really hear, and if so, are they sticking to the truth? Is this really a good, healthy thing, or is this an unhealthy thing? We need to figure this out. And so they send one of my favorite guys in the Bible, Barnabas, to go figure this out. And they figure, okay, if, if they're off the rails in Antioch, Barnabas can help put them back on track. But if they're doing things the right way, then Barnabas is the guy to help them keep going. 
And so they send Barnabas, and look at what it says in verse 23. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done. Now notice, he didn't see what people had done. He saw what the grace of God had done. When you look out and you consider what's happened in a half hour to our east today, I think that's exactly what you and I need to see, is look what the grace of God has done. In the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of a really difficult time, look what God has done. He was glad, Barnabas was glad with what he saw, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. That's part of what makes Barnabas one of my favorite people in the Bible, is he's just this incredibly optimistic, enthusiastic, encouraging generous person. Here's how they describe him in verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Wouldn't you love a description like that? She was a good woman, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's the description of Barnabas. And then it says, and a great number of people were what? Brought to the Lord. Listen, you throw Barnabas into the mix and that guy's always going to make things better. He's just one of those guys that if you put him on a work team, suddenly everyone's enjoying the work. If you put him in leadership of a company, suddenly the culture of the company improves. If he walks into a party, within 15 minutes he's got everyone else dancing. He's just one of those guys. And so when he's put in the middle of Antioch, Things just go even better than they were already going. Anyone know what a pyromaniac is? Don't just point to me, although you'd be right. Pyromaniac is someone who loves fire. Barnabas is a spiritual pyromaniac. Barnabas is one of those guys who loves to fan flames spiritually. So here's what faith is. Faith is the ability to see what God's up to. Some of you have the spiritual gift of faith. I don't have this, and I, and I love to hang out with you because you have the ability to see what God is up to. And you can see where other people see problems, you see potential. And that's an incredible gift. Barnabas had the ability, but he had kind of one step further than just this type of faith. Barnabas' faith is the ability to see what God is up to and pour fuel on it. I see God kindling something over there and I'm going to take my gas can and I'm just going to pour it on. All right? I see what God is doing and I, I just want to be part of doing that more. Here's what's cool about the story of Bainbridge is that the last four years, we have a bunch of people, some of you included, who had Barnabas faith. You saw what God was doing or maybe you heard what God was doing. And you're like, I want to be part of that. I want to pour some fuel on that. Let me highlight some of the stories. Because if you're here at Green, you're watching online, maybe you don't know some of the people that God has already used out there. Some of the people from this campus or some of the people that God impressed on their heart. Four years ago, we had almost no one in our church who lived in Bainbridge. And so we had a question. Well, how do we begin something out there? So we went back to Berean's history. Do you know how this church began in green? It was with this home Bible study 
in the home of Gwen's parents. Gwen, were you there? Probably. You don't remember much <laughs> from then. 50, that was 19, I think it was 1966 was that first Bible study. And they met in a Bible study. And so we said, okay, if that was good enough for Green back in the 60s, it's going to be good enough for Bainbridge in the 2000s. So we began a Bible study. And our goal was let's grow slowly, quietly, and deeply. Let's get people grounded in the word of God. Let's see if God wants to do something in Bainbridge. And so there was a couple who opened their home to us, James and Janice. And each week, I went out there, and we did a Bible study. We studied the book of Acts together. We studied some other things together, and we asked the question, what's God up to? We began praying very, very specifically for the community of Bainbridge. I'm telling you, it was a sweet, joyful time. And our group grew from a handful of just a few of us. It grew and grew. And then this past year, when the construction was going on, and we needed a volunteer to build the stage out in the new campus, guess who rolled up their sleeves to do it? James and his son, because this is a couple with Barnabas faith. And they're out there this morning celebrating what God has done with the rest of our friends in Bainbridge. Now, when we kind of outgrew the home and it was time to not be as private and quiet behind the scenes and go public, we began to launch worship gatherings. And we did it in what was at the time the Presbyterian Mission Center. And we began doing monthly gatherings out here. But the problem is we didn't have volunteers. We didn't have people to make this work. And so there were people like Ken and Kelly. Ken and Kelly, they live in North Norwich. So that's not even Norwich. That's, believe it or not, north of Norwich. And they made the decision, we're going to drive down to Bainbridge and help these worship gatherings get started. If you know Kenny, aka Santa in training, and you know Kelly, you know that these are two people that have faith and enthusiasm like Barnabas. And they just brought a warmth and a joy to those gatherings off the bat. And they knew we can't be part of this long term, but, but for now, to get this off the ground, we're going to drive all this way on a regular basis. And we're just going to love people. And we're just going to serve people. And they did. We outgrew that fairly quickly. So we moved to the high school auditorium. It was a beautiful place. It was a big place. And the challenge with a really big place is you can get lost in a really big place. And so Anne Marie, who's a Bainbridge person, she lives in the community. She decided she's going to help us be that warm smile at the door, welcoming people, making them feel loved and accepted and wanted. And people like Anne Marie Schaefer every week would greet people and give them that Berean experience. Let them know we want you here. We're glad you're here. We don't care what you look like. We don't care what you smell like. We don't care how you're dressed. We don't care what your background is. We just want to love you and introduce you to someone named Jesus. Well, after our time at the, at the school came to an end, we moved to our next location. You notice we moved around a lot? We, we went to the theater, the Jericho Theater, there in Bainbridge. We began to meet, and believe it or not, the Jericho Theater is not here, it's here. And a lot of stairs to climb. It was getting them ready for their next location. And 
there at this theater, we began doing gatherings, and one of the guys who was instrumental in making these happen every week was a guy named Ryan. God used Ryan and Lindsay to set up every week. Tech stuff, ton of technology, had to be set up, torn down, and done every week. And Ryan helped us to pull that off because he had the faith. He could see what God was doing, and he just wanted to be part of it. Then after the theater, we moved to our next place. This is going to be a long story. I hope you're sticking around for a while. <laughs> this is actually the place we've been since September of 2018. And where we've been meeting in this fire hall is here. Right up in the, up in the big um, open area. There are four flights of stairs to get up there. You can, if you want to know who a Bainbridge campus attender is, look at their calves. They're huge. They had been doing stair-stepping for over two years. And so they had been meeting up there, and in that time, every Sunday, 8 in the morning, there's a group of people who show up, and they just begin setting up. Chairs, tables, technology, screens. And you know who's been doing that every Sunday, quietly, without drawing any attention to himself, serving just because he wants to be part of it? Is this young man named Andrew. Andrew started coming to our church when we opened at that Presbyterian Mission Center, and he caught a fire for Jesus. And that young man has been serving faithfully every Sunday at 8 a.m., two hours before church even begins, just because he wants to be part of what God's doing. <laughs> now, I, I could go on and on and share more and more stories of people that are out there today, people who are in this room today, people who are watching online, and you've been part of this journey. But I want to tell you, thank you for being people of Barnabas-like faith. Thank you for pouring fuel on the fire. This is where they meet today in their newest home. There's not a single stare that I'm aware of in that place. I was thinking just to make it feel like home, we should have a set of stairs that go up and then go back down that they have to walk up and down to get into the worship center today. That'd be fun. <laughs> the stairs weren't in the budget. I like that. So here's, here's my prayer. My prayer is that God would continue to raise up more people with Barnabas-like faith. Because can I tell you something, my friends? There are more communities out there that are in need of Jesus. I don't think this is the end. I think we're just getting started. Look at verse 25. Here's what Barnabas decides to do at this point. And this is kind of funny. Barnabas is one of those guys that you love, but you don't always know what he's going to do next. Barnabas then went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Okay, so you hear that and you're like, okay, Saul, let's put this back in context. Saul's the guy who's made it his mission to wipe out Christianity. Now, Barnabas knows something about Saul. He's heard stories of Saul having a change of heart. He's heard stories that Saul really wants to join these Jesus followers, but the leaders and the people don't really trust this guy. Would you? And, and, Saul, and, and Barnabas has it in his mind. Okay, the reason that these Christian expats are refugees up here in Antioch is because they were driven out by a guy named Saul. I know the perfect guy to come up and help us right now. I'll go get Saul. Brilliant idea, right? But Barnabas was willing to take a risk on someone that no one else was willing to take a risk on. 
a guy that no one else was willing to trust. And Barnabas is like, yeah, I'm going to go on a little 100-mile walk. I'm going to go track Saul down and see if he wants to come up and help the people that he drove up here with his cruelty. And if he wants to maybe dump some good stuff on him now. And if he wants to truly express his new faith. And Barnabas, although... When you compare Barnabas and Saul, Saul had superior education. Saul had superior intelligence. Saul seems to be more, <laughs> more knowledgeable than Barnabas. But you know what? To be a mentor, all you got to do is have a desire to help people take their next step. You don't have to be smarter than them. You don't have to be more educated than them. And Barnabas is just one of those guys that he's not threatened by Saul. He's not threatened by his intelligence or his past or his education. He's just like, I think I can help him take his next step. He tells the church, I'll be back. He goes and he gets Saul, the guy who started the persecution. And he brings him up to Antioch. <laughs> now, what happens next is cool, but I want to tell you a couple things that happen because of what Barnabas and Saul do next. When he gets Saul and brings him back. Look at verse 26. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And then there's this one little sentence that says, the disciples were called what? Christians first at Antioch. Now, here's the significance. Christian simply means little Christ. And the reason that they were given a name is because they were becoming so numerous. People had to give them a label. They're not just a little, a little fanatical group of people. They're becoming this widespread movement in the city. And so people are like, well, what are we going to call these religious wingnuts? Let's call them Christians. It was meant to be a derogatory term. And the people liked it so much, they're like, sure. Okay, we're Christians. Christians just means little Christ. We want to be like Christ, so sure, call us a little Christ. And they were first called Christians in Antioch. Our movement gets its name from this city and what these people did. This, the second thing to notice is that Saul and Barnabas team up here for their first project together and they decide they liked it so much, they're going to keep doing it. And so they work together throughout the Mediterranean region after this and they go to new communities and they teach the gospel, they launch new churches and they begin this movement. And this is where the gospel and the movement of Christianity goes from this regional thing in Israel to this international global movement. Antioch becomes the launching pad for the gospel. And it, it started partly because Barnabas was willing to take a risk on a guy named Saul and I pray that we're always the type of people that are willing to take risks on those who are different from us. Because Jesus loves using average, ordinary, messed up people. Look at verse 27. Let's, let's finish this chapter right here. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus. There's a name for your next kid. Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. 
the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is where the story kind of flips. So at the beginning of the story, you've got the church in Jerusalem saying, hey, let's send Barnabas. Let's support and help them. Let's make sure they're on track. Let's do what we can. And now at the end of the story, you see the reverse happening. The church up in Antioch is growing and flourishing, and they hear that their friends down in Jerusalem are in trouble. They're like, hey, let's, let's go help them. Let's send Barnabas and Saul back to them. They need them more than we do, and let's send a gift financially to support them and help them get through this famine. <laughs> Quick story. Anyone else impressed with big Clydesdale-type horses? Belgian draft horses are some of the best. Belgian draft horses, when they grow full size, can be seven foot tall. And they can weigh up to 3,000 pounds. That's a lot of hay and grain. Farmers have used these draft horses for hundreds of years. In fact, these were the original John Deere tractors. <laughs> All right? Now, one horse, one horse can pull between seven and 8,000 pounds, double its body weight. One horse can pull about four tons. Now, there's a story with these horses, and I don't know exactly how it goes, but probably went something like this. There was an old farmer, and he had a gnarly old stump he needed to get out of his field. And so he thinks, you know, I'm not going to burn this thing out. It's too big. It's going to take too much work. I'm going to get old Sam, my big old Belgian draft horse, and I'm going to yank this thing out. So he gets old Sam, and he gets a rope and chain around that stump, and old Sam goes and tries to pull, and old Sam can't budge it. And his wife's watching with amusement from the house until she can't stand his salty language bouncing off the hillsides any longer. She goes and she says, Willem, why don't you go ask our neighbor to borrow his horse, hook the two of them up together, and see if it'll work. So for once in his life, he takes his wife's advice, goes to his neighbor's house, asks if he can borrow his draft horse, and he says, sure, I'm interested to see how this works. They get their two draft horses together, and the two draft horses together yank on that stump, and with no sweat, with no effort, they pull that stump out. And their jaws drop because they suddenly realize that two draft horses can do way more than one draft horse times two could do. In fact, one draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds, but you know what two can pull? Two can pull 24,000 pounds. 12 tons. And farmers began to realize if you raise these horses together and, and kind of let them pull together often, you can get two draft horses that can pull 32,000 pounds. 32,000 pounds, 16 tons. Two horses driving towards the same goal, committed to going the same direction, are four times more effective than one pulling alone. Now, churches are not horses. But imagine if churches and campuses did this and started working together to pull in the same direction. See, I don't know what the future holds, but what if in 2071, 50 years down the road, what if our green church here at Green Campus is struggling? And what if our friends out in Bainbridge says, we're gonna come help you 
We're going to send you some money. We're going to send you some people. And we're going to help you get through your difficult time. How cool would that be? I mean, that's what happens to this church in Antioch. Is they go from being on the receiving end to the giving end. I mean, what if this baby church, this daughter campus that we've launched today, what if someday it's an adult helping other churches? My friends, this is our desire, is that we're not pulling alone, but we're pulling together. Why can't we join together with other campuses? Why can't we join together with other churches and work together for the spread of the gospel in this region? And I am blessed to be part of a church that you've given us permission to do that. We get to partner with other churches constantly. Next week, we're going to share one really cool way that we're partnering with another church and helping them right now. And together, we get to be like Belgian draft horses, pulling spiritual stumps out that we could never pull out alone. Northeast America is one of the spiritually darkest places in the entire country. It is a mission field. And this church realizes that And you've begun to think and act like missionaries. And because of that, by God's grace, we're able to pull stumps that we would never be able to pull alone. So here's what all this boils down to. I don't think these Jesus followers in Antioch, I don't think they set out to change the world, but they did. Their mission was simple. They just wanted to share Jesus with their neighbors. One life at a time. And as these neighbors started coming to Jesus, they began to mentor them and they began sharing Jesus with other people. Their neighbors started sharing Jesus with people. They got Barnabas there and Barnabas started just pouring gas on the fire. And 2,000 years later, you and I are part of their legacy. We're called Christians because of them. We got included in the kingdom and heard the good news as non-Jews, most of us, because of them. See, churches that change the world, they're just focused on changing people. And, and I don't know that Berean has a mission to change the world, but my friends, we have a mission to introduce people to Jesus. And that's how the world gets changed. One person, one family, one community at a time. 50 years from now, If there's a thriving church 30 minutes to our east that is connecting people to Jesus, that is raising up leaders and sending them out, that's why we do what we do today. Because we desire to make more and better Jesus followers. And that's why today we're excited about that building, sure. But we're way more excited that there are people there today that are going to get connected to Jesus Christ. And we want you to know this morning, especially if you're a guest here with us, we're way more excited about you than we are a new building. We are excited about the opportunity to introduce you to Jesus Christ because he has the power to change your life. Many of us here, our lives have been changed by Jesus And we're still astounded by that. So in conclusion, on your chair or near you, you should have gotten one of these little cards, these little turquoise cards. It says PI2 or PI squared at the top. Here's what I'd like you to do. Just grab it for a moment. 
and look at it with me. This is just a simple way that we can stay focused on our mission of connecting people to Jesus. When we say that's our mission as a church, what we're saying is that's our personal mission as people. We're a group of people, a group of Jesus followers, whose mission is to introduce other people to Jesus. So PI squared simply means this. If you look on the back, it says who's on your PI squared list. And, it, and there's space there for you to put the name of a family member, a friend, a coworker, or a classmate, and a neighbor who's far from God. Someone that you care about. Someone that you want to share heaven with you someday. Now I know many of us have way more than four names that come to our mind. But this just helps you get started. If you would do me a favor sometime today and fill out four names of people you're going to be praying for. That's the P. So if you go to the front, here's what I'm going to do for these four people. I'm going to pray daily, every day for those on my list. And I'm going to ask God for opportunities and boldness and clarity. And then the I, the first I is this. I'm going to invest by building authentic relationships and real friendships with those on my list. Listen, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so who are you going to build authentic relationships with? And then invite. I am going to ask God for the opportunity to invite people to their next level of commitment, whatever that is, right? Whether it's watching a DVD, whether it's reading a book, whether it's coming to church with me, whatever that is, I'm going to be constantly praying, God, give me opportunities to share you with these people. Give me opportunities to help them take their next step of faith. Today is a special moment for our church. But my friends, it's not an end of something. It's the beginning of something. How is God going to use us to impact the people in our circle? How is he going to use us? And listen, if that's not the driving force of my life, then my life's going in the wrong direction. The driving force of my life, if I believe that God is real and I believe that what he tells me is true and I believe that there's only two eternal destinations, there's a heaven and there's a hell and hell is just as real as heaven and I wouldn't wish hell on my worst enemy. It should be the driving mission of my life to see if I can take as many people to heaven with me as I can. I never want to stand at judgment someday and see people I care about who don't get to go in, and I never want to have them look at me and say, why didn't you tell me? If you knew this was coming, and you knew this was going to happen, why didn't you tell me? My friends, it's our job. It's our privilege to be like these people in Antioch 2,000 years ago and just tell our neighbors. Just tell our classmates, tell our family members, tell our friends the good news about Jesus. It's not up to us to determine their decision. That's between them and God. It's just to us, up to us to give them the invitation and let them know that there is a Savior who died for them, loves them, and wants to forgive them. My friends, we're a half hour away from that worship gathering starting. We're a half hour away from people that have never heard about Jesus. This morning, they're going to hear about him very clearly. And I can't wait to hear what God does out there. But I know that God's at work here too.
And so I'd like us to bow together, pray for them, but pray also for here. And let me give you that invitation. Maybe you have never received the forgiveness of Jesus. You don't have to be in Bainbridge this morning to have your life be changed. (laughs) Jesus can change you here online. He can change you if you ask him. And you say, well, what does that entail? It entails this. You need to believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he came to earth, died for your sins, rose three days later. And if you believe in him and ask him to be your savior, your Lord, your leader, he will indeed forgive you. He will adopt you into his forever family and you will become part of the family of faith. There's no magic words. It's a matter of faith in the heart. So today, if that's you, I encourage you, let God know that you believe, that you believe in his son. Tell someone today, confess that with your mouth. Let them know, I believe. Today, I'm I'm choosing to believe. I'm choosing to commit my eternity to Jesus. And let that person celebrate with you. Father, in 30 minutes from now, Pastor Steve and Rick and the volunteers are going to They're going to have the doors open and they're going to begin that worship gathering, that grand opening. God, right now, there are people that are deciding if they're going to get in the car and go. We pray that Satan would not be able to stop them from getting there today and hearing the good news about Jesus. God, we pray that today there are people that would hear about you, that you would soften their heart and that they would believe and they would join the family of faith. God, that's why that building's there. Help us to always be a church that's willing to do whatever it takes to reach people who are far from you. God, thank you for the legacy of Barnabas and Paul and Antioch. Help us to be that kind of people, that kind of faithful people who see what you're doing and who pour fuel on it. Thanks for inviting us into a mission that's so much bigger than ourselves. God, 50 years from now, many of us won't be here. But if your name is becoming great in this region, that's all we care about. Lord, we want to make you famous. And we pray that today is just another step in that journey. We ask this all in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. Check out this video. So they call this the burned over district. At one point in time, central New York was the birthplace of some of our nation's greatest spiritual movements. The flames that kindled in these hills spawned missions movements and church planting movements across the United States and the world. But those flames are a distant memory. Today, our region is the most post-Christian region in the United States. 
four out of the 10 most post-Christian cities are here in New York. It is a graveyard for churches. This is not where churches thrive. This is where churches die. But we serve a God who delights in bringing dead things back to life. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 says, The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. And it's here, in the rolling foothills of rural central New York, that God is kindling new life. The story of Berean is the story of God once again igniting a fire in our region with the hope of Jesus. It began a little over 50 years ago when, thanks to the prayers of two faithful women, a small gathering in a home grew into a thriving regional movement. A decade ago, Berean was a solid church of 250 people. And in the years since then, we've celebrated nearly 400 baptisms and moved to five weekly worship gatherings at three locations and grown far beyond our wildest expectations. And that's taught us something. Our God is at work, and our region is thirsty for this message. We believe that God has positioned us right here, right now, for this purpose. Will we join Him in passionate pursuit of our friends and our neighbors, our communities, our region? Will we see the potential that He sees in the places where few others are looking? We don't want to become complacent and let this fire die out. Instead, we want to pour fuel on this burning hot fire and energize the transformation that he's bringing to our region. Thank you.